Hello and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I am your host, Anna Rasquat-Paz. In each episode of our show, we feature top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. In this episode, we talk to the four authors of Nature and Health, an article that appears in the 2014 Annual Review of Public Health. In this article, they review the current knowledge on how the experience of nature influences individual and population health, both in measurable and more intangible ways. They also discuss the research that remains to be done. The first thing I asked them was to define nature in this context. Nature as a concept is uh, not so easy to define in some sense. I mean, you can say it is a, a undisturbed, wild, natural area. But in fact, when we talk about nature, we're often talking about nature embedded within, surrounded by uh, human-constructed environments. This is Terry Hartig, professor of environmental psychology with the Institute for Housing and Urban Research and the Department of Psychology at Uppsala University. In his work, he focuses on how environments support processes of psychological restoration. Uh, we're talking about, for example, street trees or house plants even. So the nature that we consider in this article is diverse, and it's, it's not separated from or uh, free from human influence. Rather the opposite, that it's occurring in, in areas that show substantial human influence. And importantly, it's embedded with or endowed with meaning. So why is it important to think about what nature does to us? Well, we're used to thinking about the appropriate habitats for animals. Howard Frumkin of the University of Washington says it's time we thought about our own. Zookeepers all the time are are about defining healthy habitat. The animals there need uh, elements of flora and fauna that are part of their natural habitat. They need uh, clean air and clean water. They need um, some privacy, but they also need some social interaction with other animals. Uh, They need the right temperature and humidity. So put all those things together, and those make a healthy habitat, and and the metric of success is that the animals in a zoo enclosure thrive. If we take that thinking over to humans, it's unusual but interesting. We can list human needs, uh, basic human needs, and your list might differ from my list, but most people would agree that clean air, clean water, a balance between privacy and social contact, some contact with nature, access to healthy food, routine physical activity, safety from injuries or crimes, all of those things comprise a healthy human habitat. And a part of that is probably contact with nature. Now, there is evolutionary theory that suggests that there's good reason and long-standing reason for people to like being around nature. But what we talk about in this paper is there's also a fair body of empirical evidence now suggesting the same thing, that an important component of a healthy, wholesome human habitat is contact with nature. The assumption, of course, is that more nature equals better health. The reality, the authors say, is that this connection is not quite that obvious, says Dr. Hartig. The field of public health regards the natural environment with ambivalence. The natural environment is also uh, a setting for infectious illnesses. The natural environment also involves 
catastrophes. So the natural environment also kills us and makes us ill. So our focus here is on how the experience of the natural environment, the experience of nature in contact with nature can be beneficial. We approach that as a scientific question and we acknowledge that sometimes it, it doesn't turn out to be that way. It's also unclear that being in direct contact with nature will increase healthful behaviors. According to Shep de Vries, who is a social scientist at the Institute Altera at the University of Wageningen in the Netherlands. The American suburbs may be very green, but for example, active transport may be less likely to occur because destinations are loca- located uh, pretty far away. And if a Dutch person would have to travel the same distance to a shop, they might also be inclined to take uh, the car, but because shops tend to be quite near in the neighborhood themselves, they can go uh, by bicycle, for example. But done right, the impact of contact with nature on our health may well be significant. Richard Mitchell, who is a professor of health and environment at the University of Glasgow, reviewed the existing literature and was surprised. Perhaps the most striking thing is the extent to which these reviews that many have different methodologies and uh, have come from different disciplines um, and have been carried out in many different ways, the extent to which they agree that we do have some evidence for beneficial effects from contact with nature on human health. Um, So I didn't find any reviews that categorically said none of these effects occur. And I think all of the reviews support in some way the idea that nature can be good for us. The authors looked at four key areas. First, how do natural elements like trees and shrubs impact air quality? Dr. Frumkin says the research shows the improvements are quite minimal. Well, most people have always assumed that one of the benefits of trees, especially in urban areas, is to improve air quality. It turns out on careful review of the literature that they don't have that much of an impact. Now, there are exceptions. Some trees uh, are better than others. But in general, uh, the studies of tree benefits for air quality in cities show that at most trees improve air quality by just a few percentage points. That is, uh, relatively minimal reductions in air pollutants. On the other hand, inside buildings, where most people spend most of their time and where air quality can be even worse than outdoor air in some cases, uh, plants do seem to have a pretty substantial impact on uh, improving air quality. In particular, plants can reduce the levels of hydrocarbons and volatile organic compounds that form some of the burden of pollution in indoor air. So um, a little bit disappointing news when it comes to the efficacy of trees, but encouraging news when it comes to the efficacy of plants indoors. Interestingly, however, nature may have a positive impact on energy consumption. Yeah, that's interesting. That has to do with the role of trees as as physical objects. Uh, Trees do several things. They can break the wind and they can cast shadows. So in places that are very hot, casting the shadows helps to cool down uh, buildings that are shaded or places that are shaded. And in places that are very cool but sunny, trees can actually uh, make places cooler than they would be and increase uh, the need for heating. But the most important impact is probably in warm climates where when trees are strategically placed, they can reduce the need for uh, air conditioning, uh, thereby reducing energy demand, uh, thereby improving air quality to the extent that energy production comes from coal-fired power plants that soil the air.
Then Dr. DeVries explored nature's impact on physical activity. And there too, he found the results can be mixed. I don't think it's, it's uh, automatically so that uh, when people have more nature in their environment, the residential environment, they will become more active. Although I do think that most people consider the, the green areas in their residential environment to be relatively attractive. Uh, when they go outside, they, they are more likely to go to the green parts of their environment. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they will also be more active. They can also have a, a picnic or a barbecue in the park. And in that case, the energy intake may uh, outweigh the energy expenditure. The, the subgroup I studied most are children, because we know that children get a lot of their physical activity in the, the form of outdoor play. And they are often confined to the residential environment. And, and they have to stay close to home, uh, depending on their age, of course. So I think, especially for children, the, the and the elderly, the, the neighborhood is likely to be relatively uh, important. Social cohesion is another element that is thought to promote health. And whilst there are some studies that indicate this, much more research is needed. Well, the research is, is um, pretty limited for social cohesion, much more limited than for uh, um, physical activity. There have been a lot of studies on the, the environmental environmental characteristics that, that influence uh, physical activity. And there have only been a few studies that looked at the social cohesion. So to begin with, we don't know uh, very much. Uh, but at the same time, the few studies that are available all tend to show that there is a, a relation between the, the, the greenness of your physical environment and neighborhood social cohesion, and also that this social cohesion uh, could be an important mediator between the greenness of your environment and your your health. So it might be a very important one, but it uh, has not received much research attention thus far. However, some studies have shown that contact with nature may help to lower aggression. Well, it's a very nice set of studies because it's more or less a natural experiment uh, that they had going on in, in Chicago. It was about uh, social housing projects with uh, people being assigned to uh, quite similar apartment buildings, which originally all had some green space around them, grassy areas and some trees. But around some of the apartment buildings, uh, um, the green space disappeared, and the surface was sealed, and other apartment buildings still had their green space. And since uh, the residents were assigned more or less random by the, the local authorities, it was kind of, of a natural experiment. And the study showed that um, people living in apartment buildings that still had their green space had more contact with neighborhood members. Also, um, they reported less aggression and, and less uh, crime going on. I think the letter was based on police reports even. Nature, as they explained, definitely has some restorative effects. It can help lower stress, says Dr. Hartig. If I put it simply, I would say that we understand that the natural environment involves fewer stressful exposures of the kind that people ordinarily confront in an everyday urban existence. Uh, less noise, less crowding, and so forth. Uh, at the same time, though, 
restoration isn't only a matter of getting away from what causes uh, the experience of stress. Uh, restoration is also about engaging with the environment. When a person can engage with the natural environment, for example, when they find it beautiful and interesting, when they can explore, take an interest in what birds and other animals are doing, when they become fascinated by some plant or water moving in a stream, then it's not only a matter of getting away from stressful demands, it's a matter of engaging with the environment. Now, that may reinforce a sense of psychological distance from stressful demands, but it also is something that captures their attention, that, that holds them there. And we think that this experience of interest and engagement with the environment is something that not only permits restoration, but promotes restoration. That is, helps restoration proceed more quickly and helps restoration uh, become more complete just as important is how all these areas interact to multiply the positive impact of nature on health. It's important that people working on different parts of this puzzle uh, collaborate to a greater extent. So we have air quality, physical activity, uh, social context, and uh, stress reduction as ways in which contact with nature can uh, work to improve health. Well, we're thinking of a person out in a natural environment who periodically goes out to a natural environment to take a walk in a park, for example, or who looks out onto a natural environment from their window at home. Uh, in a variety of ways, people come into contact with nature. Now, in some of those ways, multiple pathways are engaged simultaneously. So, for example, a person may go out from their home in a downtown area and meet a neighbor or a group of neighbors, and together they take a walk uh, as they do ordinarily after work, and they walk to the park and they walk around in the park. So this is not an exceptional scenario. This is not an extraordinary scenario. We might change out family members for neighbors, but in any case, we have people going out together after a demanding work day for a walk in a green space near the home. Well, what is happening then? Uh, we could say that it involves all of these pathways, that they're going out because physical activity is good for them. They understand that if they remain physically active, their health may be better in the long run. But there are lots of things that people could do to maintain their health in the long run, uh, which they don't do because they're not enjoyable. So they may be going out because walking in the park together is enjoyable. Why is it enjoyable? Well, it may be enjoyable because they get to be together. Uh, it may also be enjoyable because it helps them to wind down after a demanding work day. It helps them to relieve tension and, and so reduce stress. They may appreciate the, the freshness of the air, the, the smell of the trees and so forth. So there are a variety of things that may be leading them to engage in this behavior. So it's a pity when we only look at that as physical activity. In fact, we, we could look at other aspects of what is going on in that exchange between person and this natural environment of the park. And here's something else that the literature agrees on, says Dr. Mitchell. Actually, we need a lot more evidence to understand the extent to which nature influences human health. 
and the ways in which nature can influence human health in terms of the mechanisms by which that occurs and, and how we use that information to um, design or manage or promote different kinds of natural environments uh, to maximize um, their potential benefits for human health. So what don't we understand? Dr. Mitchell, who is also the co-director of the Center for Research on Environment, Society and Health, which sits between Glasgow and Edinburgh universities, told me a little more about the gaps in knowledge in the ways that contact with nature impacts health. One of the challenges is understanding um, how the mechanisms by which we think contact with nature can affect health, how they may or may not combine together. So we have good evidence that, that each of the mechanisms we discuss in our review, um, that they do work, and, and we, I think we understand reasonably well how they work. So I think we understand fairly well how being physically active um, affects your health in a good way. I think we understand fairly well that being in contact with nature can help um, reduce the body's stress responses. We understand that that does happen, perhaps how it happens, if not entirely why it happens. We understand that being in social contact with each other can bring health benefits directly and indirectly. And we understand increasingly about the ways in which natural environments may help um, reduce air pollution. What's more difficult to understand is how those mechanisms may combine to influence health. So, for example, we have quite good evidence to say that physical activity in natural environments appears to be better for you than physical activity in non-natural environments. So it's, it's better to go for a run in the, in the forest than it is to go for a run in the gym, for example, in terms of its impact uh, on your physiology and on your mental health. So we're starting to understand how some of these mechanisms may combine together uh, in contact with nature. But it's quite a difficult thing to do. And one of the reasons it's difficult is that each of these mechanisms may be triggered differently in different kinds of natural environments and even on different visits to natural environments. So, for example, if I'm out for a walk with my children um, in the park in the afternoon, the park may be affecting my health uh, in one way. But if I go back to the park in the evening for a run on my own, I'm, I'm using that natural environment in a, a different way, and the mechanisms by which that environment is affecting my health may operate um, in different ways and in different combinations. So whilst we understand that these kind of synergies between mechanisms probably do occur, it can be very hard to unpack them, and then particularly to work out what kinds of contacts with what kinds of natural environments might trigger which mechanisms um, for affecting health positively. Methodology is definitely a challenge in nature and health research. Gathering the necessary data to evaluate how impactful the contact with nature can be is quite difficult, as Dr. Mitchell explains. One of the big challenges that we have uh, in this field of research is how we actually measure the amount of contact or the amount of exposure to natural environments that people have. And particularly, this is difficult if you're trying to assess the impact of nature on what we call population health. So that's when we're interested in large numbers of people. You know, if you were to ask me, what contribution does um, the natural environment in a city have or in many cities um, across a country? And typically, what we tend to do is to work out um, where the subjects of our research live um, so we know perhaps their, their, their address in a street, and, and we work out how much natural environment they have in that residential neighborhood. How, how near to a park do they live, or what proportion of the land area where they live is a natural environment. And, and then we make this 
potentially entirely wrong assumption that people who are surrounded by a greater amount of natural environment have more contact with nature. And obviously that could be very problematic because they might have a park down the road, but it might well be that they, they never use it. Um, it could also be that they don't have much green space in their environment, but um, they make a point of seeking it out or, or they travel away from their area of residence to seek it out. So, so that can be a problem. The second way that we try to sort out um, people's exposure to nature is through survey questions. So you know, we ask people, um, how often do you visit a natural environment? You know, when, when you go out for recreation, what kind of places do you go? What do you do? And in many ways, that can be a more accurate measure of, of people's contact with nature. But, but it has to be a contact with nature which they, which they perceive and, and remember. Uh, and perhaps, actually, they're kind of staring into space, looking out the window uh, of a train on their commute to work. Um, and in fact, subconsciously, they're perceiving a great deal of nature. But because they're not consciously remembering it, they don't report that to us. Uh, and, and there are plenty of studies to suggest that that process of perceiving nature may still be doing them some good. And then more recently, with the advent of things like GPS and smartphones uh, and those kinds of technologies, we're also able now for smaller scale studies to track where people go. So we can, we can follow them through their, through their days, through their weeks, uh, and try to get a measure of the amount of exposure to nature they have that way. So if we can see where they've walked or where they've been, um, and we have really good data from satellite imagery or really um, detailed maps, we can work out what kind of natural environments they've been past. So clearly there's a lot that we don't know. But is there anything that we can already do? The four authors seem to think so. I asked Dr. Mitchell if we knew enough to make recommendations to policymakers. I don't think we can afford to wait um, until we know all the answers from perfect science, um, because you know we could be waiting forever. One of the interesting things that's happened, certainly in the UK, is that research um, from people like me and from other teams around the country working on this area has already found its way into policy. Um, and it, it's quite an unusual position to be in um, as, a, as a health professional, I think, to have, in some ways, the policy agenda almost running ahead of the science agenda. So there are already um, strong policy recommendations um, that people should have more contact with natural environments, that natural environments can be a good way to promote physical activity, it can be a good way to promote mental health, um, and that these should become a kind of core part of how we think about tackling some of our population health problems. So, you know, in some ways, our agenda is already um, in the policy document, certainly in, in the UK. This isn't a new phenomenon, says Dr. Hartig. Of course, we've had legislation to create, for example, national parks, uh, efforts to create urban parks. Uh, many of these kinds of measures uh, involving not only legislation but also design, have been stimulated by the idea that contact with nature is beneficial for people. Uh, I often refer to a report that Frederick Law Olmsted wrote to the governor of California in 19, or excuse me, 1865 uh, on the management of what came to be known as Yosemite National Park. And in that report to the governor of California, Frederick Law Olmsted wrote about the importance of park experience, contact with nature, the contemplation of natural scenery as a basis for what we now describe as restorative experiences. 
so that the thinking has been around for a long time, the thinking has been active for a very long time. Now we are adding more uh, empirical flesh to the bones, if you will, the bones of thinking and speculation about how contact with nature can be good for us. And there are many things that decision makers can already do. Here's what Dr. Frumkin has to say about this. Well, for urban planners and for elected officials, for developers and builders, there were lots of lessons here. At the very fine scale, buildings that incorporate biophilic design, that use natural motifs and materials, uh, views of nature, maybe small gardens or uh, uh, plants within the building, uh, are a way of providing nature contact. At a slightly a larger scale, say the scale of neighborhood blocks, putting in pocket parks, putting in canopy trees along streets, putting in views of nature are very positive assets. And at a larger scale, uh, incorporating green space into the fabric of cities and providing access so that people can get from where they live to those green spaces uh, offers a whole range of benefits. What's interesting is that those benefits are not often fully quantified in economic terms. And if they were, I suspect that decision makers would be a lot more focused on the benefits of nature. Uh, the, the health benefits would lead to reduced health care costs. That's an important economic benefit. In addition, people like contact with nature. People like uh, canopy trees on streets and they like parks and green spaces. The real estate values in places that are built that way rise. That means higher municipal tax revenues and that means more resources for people. So in just those couple of ways, not to mention all the ecosystem services, stormwater management, cooling during heat waves, and so on, uh, nature offers a whole range of benefits in cities. In the meantime, there are some places that have been quite successful at integrating nature into the fabric of the cities. Dr. Frumkin. So some of the older cities uh, in the country uh, set aside a lot of parkland early. You've got the example of Central Park in New York, which is a a large rectangle of land right in the middle of Manhattan Island. You've got the example of uh, Fairmont Park in the Wissahickon in Philadelphia, where the parkland that was set aside is essentially floodplain. It's the land along the uh, streams and rivers that run through the city. And that could be done in a day when uh, cities were being built from scratch and there was a fair amount of central planning and a sense of uh, the greater good that went into urban design. On the other hand, negatives that we can easily see now are the large suburban uh, tracts that have been built in the last 50 years and some of the newer post-automobile era cities, the Jacksonvilles and Phoenixes and, uh, and so on. Uh, in places like that, almost all of the land was developed through private development efforts, less of a sense of the, the collective good, the greater good, less land set aside for parks. And once the fabric of the city is put in place, it's very hard to undo that and acquire the land for the public use. So there, there, we have good data on the amount of acreage uh, per person, the amount of acreage per square mile of cities, and American cities vary quite a bit in how much parkland they've got. Uh, but the, a lot of the older ones are, offer some of the best examples because they got an early start and were able to set aside land early. So what if you don't have access to parks inside cities? What can policymakers do? Dr. DeVries' research suggests that there's one form of nature we could harness for our own benefit. I'm not sure yet that, that um, 
scenic beauty is a requirement for, uh, for example, attention restoration. Even if you don't find it very beautiful, it can still have a restorative effect. And, and one thing, for example, um, this, this has been relatively little attention uh, for, for agricultural areas compared to, to urban parks and nature and forest areas. But it may be that agricultural areas also may be equally restorative because they are also a uh, quite different situation than the, the urban environment. You have to do the contrast between the urban and the rural. You have to contrast between the, the you could say the cultural and the natural. But the, the contrast between the dynamic urban and the, the slow rural may also uh, make the rural area uh, suitable for restoration. You could achieve a lot with that, that, uh, giving people access to uh, surrounding agricultural areas, so you might need might not need that many urban new urban parks, which are very difficult to realize in the existing uh, urban fabric. Clearly, there's much to be discovered in this field, but also much we can already do. One thing we know, the emerging consensus is that for many of us, especially city dwellers, contact with nature may well promote mental and physical health. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For over 80 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rasquet Paz. Thanks for listening.